0: Welcome to the Saturday Blitz podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Begolke. Welcome to this week's Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Begolke, here as always with John Mitchell. This week, we're going to be talking about some general college football news as teams start to return to campus uh, beginning with last Monday's Returned by football players to the University of Wyoming and uh, Florida State, and a couple of other schools. And, uh, you know, going into some major player news, talking about Pat Dye's recent death. Before uh, switching in the second segment, looking more specifically at what's going on around the country right now with the protests around George Floyd's. Uh, Death at the hands of the Minneapolis police. And uh, what responsibility football coaches, administrators, uh, you know, the leaders of the sport have to speak up about police brutality, about protests and rioting, and all of these different things that are huge in the news well beyond football right now. Before we get into all of this, though, John... We've been, you know, locked up at home for a while now. How are you doing?
1: You know, about as well as can be expected with the world falling apart all around the country, as it seems. Uh, every time it feels like maybe we're taking a step forward in 2020, something else happens that brings it all back down to the ground. So I, I'm happy to be here and talk some college football, at least. And hopefully, at least in the first segment, get a little bit of escapism from the the current trajectory of the country
0: well and i think that's a big reason why so many people want college football back that's why you know that's why so many people are getting excited about things they would never get excited about before like korean baseball and you know german soccer Most Americans don't give a damn about these things. But with, you know, with sports completely absent from the American landscape or almost completely absent, people are turning wherever they can for these diversions, especially, you know, being holed up at home and, you know, needing something to divert themselves from everything that's going on. And I think some people are definitely excited about you know, the return to campus of football players for voluntary workouts, starting with, you know, uh, players in Laramie and Tallahassee starting to come back on June 1st. And, you know, the announcements by other conferences that this is going to be happening sooner rather than later, or at least that schools are allowed to begin bringing back players within the next couple weeks. Um, so... What do you think the impact is of all of these different announcements and what we see with players coming back? And, you know, do you think that, you know, do you think this is raising or lowering the expectations for what might actually happen with the 2020 season?
1: I mean, for all intents and purposes, based on what everything looks like now, I mean, I'd be surprised at this point if we don't have a 2020 season just because everything is really progressing in that vein, you're seeing, you know, voluntary workouts starting to potentially ramp up in the next couple of weeks. Um, and then hopefully coaches, I know are hoping that they're going to get, uh, a relatively, uh, at least a few weeks of summer before getting into fall camps and stuff like that to wrap up, to get ready for the start of the season, um, in late August. So you know, I, I'm more optimistic now than I than I have been, that's for sure. So, you know, you never know. With the country starting to lessen restrictions and everything, cases have been going up some, so that's a bit of a concern. So, you know, we're just a couple of bad turns away from this potentially turning sideways and potentially still impacting the college football season. But, I mean, I would say... Um, It has been at least encouraging in the last few weeks and moving in a direction that makes it seem like we're going to have football in 2020.
0: Yeah, I think the odds are increasing with each day that some kind of football is going to happen. I would still caution people about expecting the season to play out as a season normally would. Um, I don't know if we're going to have every bowl game. I don't, you know, we've heard, we've still heard talk about teams limiting their travel, shifting their schedules to play more regionally. Uh, None of that is off the table. I think that's the thing we need to keep in mind. And, you know, as schools do or do not come back, um, and depending on when they come back, and what conferences decide to do in terms of what those schedules look like when they do come back, we need to keep, you know, in the back of our head, the possibility of all these different options, all these different contingencies that could fall into place. Because it's very possible, you know, people start coming back. Like you said, we start seeing more normal activity. And even if we don't see full stadiums and I highly doubt we'll see full stadiums at the very least, which cuts into a certain amount of the, you know, atmosphere of college football. That'll be interesting as well. So, um, and how long those seasons go, maybe by November, we see spikes high enough again that we have to taper off. And so, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic is what I would say. It is is probably the best way to look at this sort of information right now. That's at least where I'm standing with it.
1: I, I, I totally agree. I, I am definitely a lot more optimistic now, but, you know, still mm-hmm. in the back of my mind, I don't want to get too um, ready and prepared for the season just to be disappointed because something happens. But... I think we're in a definite better spot now than when we talked about this a couple of months ago.
0: Yeah, you know, and the question is: Are we in a better spot, or are people just deciding enough is enough and pushing things forward? That
1: really—it's no, it, definitely that.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, and I think that's really what we need to keep an eye on because it—it it ain't over yet. That's really what we need to remember: is it ain't over. Like we still need to be taking precautions. We still need to isolate as much as possible. You're not gonna have three hundred thousand people flocking on state college, just you know, a mile down the road from my house, seven Saturdays this this fall. It, that's not going to happen. You're not going to see that level of tailgating, that level, you know, 106,000 people aren't going to get into that stadium, much less the hundreds of thousands that congregate outside. So keep those things in mind. And whether or not it's even possible to do that by law, the thing is, is enough people are going to want to stay home and stay away from, you know, the risk. Risk is a very real thing in the back of people's mind right now. And as much as we can talk about opening up businesses, opening up these things, you know, allowing business as usual to move forward, business as usual only happens when people actually are willing to start operating as they did before. And I don't think that's going to be happening anytime soon. So cautiously optimistic but with that in mind let's let's talk about some of the other news before you know while we we're still here in this opening segment because we've seen some interesting stuff with players as well you know um I think obviously the the saddest news we heard was probably Clemson receiver Justin Ross um you know effectively missing the 2020 season at the very least with what Dabo Swinney um, said was a quote congenital fusion in his spine Um, I'm not a doctor I don't know exactly what that that, that pertains to where it is in his spine would you know obviously be something to wonder as well but apparently he has to undergo surgery for this and you know, there's a question whether he'll play football again, but, you know, he's definitely not back next year, and it's a long road ahead if he can even play again safely, so. Yeah,
1: I don't particularly know all the the vast nuances of of what that pertains to, but when you're dealing with something that's pertaining to the spine, that's never a good injury, Um, particularly when you're looking at something that doesn't seem like it was a contact-based injury. It seems like it was some kind of genetic flaw or something like that in Justin Ross that was discovered in a, in a routine check, you know, and then, you know, he's not feeling any issues with it currently, according to Dabo. It's just the doctors know that it's extremely dangerous for him to play football anytime soon. So, and that's the big concern. It's not the 2020 season. You know, everyone wants to come out and write their hit pieces on what this means for Clemson's 2020 season, which, of course, that's an angle that has to be looked at. But really, I don't care about stuff like that when we're this early in the process. I care about Justin Ross's well-being. Yeah, You know, because this is a guy who's just a ridiculously talented player, um, is from the state of Alabama, went to Clemson, uh, spurting both Alabama and Auburn to go play for Dabo and Clemson had his coming-out party in the in the college football playoff uh, two seasons ago, particularly showing out against Alabama in the national championship game. And for all intents and purposes, looked like he was going to be one of the best wide receivers in college football this season and was likely on his way to a first-round payday in the 2021 NFL draft. So it's devastating for him to to lose out on, on this season in the least and also lose out on all the money he stood to make. And it's just another one of those instances – about amateurism, Zach, that really hits home because this is one of the best players in college football, you know? And it wouldn't matter if it was a great player or, or even a mediocre player. These kind of injuries are always devastating. But when you see the best and the brightest have something like this happen, it's just so hard to really stomach because you know he was destined for, for things beyond... Playing football at Clemson, he was going to play in the NFL. He was probably going to be a hell of a football player in the NFL. And you know, obviously, it's a big blow for Clemson. But just from a personal standpoint, your heart really has to go out for Ross uh, coming into what was his money year.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's it's always unfortunate, and to have it happen at a point like this, where you've taken so much of the beating over the years, and. You know, that does take its cumulative toll for the healthiest of individuals and, you know, for somebody to just have, you know, a congenital issue like this that's there from birth that just sort of, you know, it's like a ticking time bomb sitting there in your spine, and you're, you're continually tapping away at it with each blow you're taking as a receiver. And on one hand, like, how fortunate is it that they've discovered this now before something happened on the field, and, you know, we saw him being carted off on a stretcher, wondering whether he's going to survive. Because that could be a very real possibility with something like this. Obviously, we don't know the extent or the severity of the injury, but if he has to undergo surgery, if he's going to be missing at least one season and there are very real questions about his long-term future in the sport, it's obviously something serious enough that something like this is possible. You know, you don't undergo surgery unless there's a real chance that something worse could happen than the surgery and the risks attendant with that. So uh, fortunate that they discovered it at this time, fortunate something never happened on the field um, that made this much worse. And yeah, hopefully a swift, healthy recovery for him. And, you know, the best of luck, whether or not he even decides to come back to football because, As much as he's been, you know, raised in the sport and loves the sport like all of these guys are, life is bigger than that, as we're discovering more and more with each passing day, so. Yeah, I mean, you
1: know, football's an extremely dangerous sport, we've talked about it a thousand times, it's really come more into the public consciousness over the last decade. Particularly with CTE and the NFL and all that uh, coming about, so you know, it, like you said, it, it's really a blessing that these doctors were able to discover this before catastrophe happened uh, on the actual gridiron. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's definitely sad to see. Definitely huge news when you when you look at it, because like I said, this is one of the best receivers in all of college football, one of the most exciting players the game had to offer he was really poised for what I figured would have been a really huge junior season teaming up with Trevor Lawrence for another go around.
0: Yeah. You know, hopefully we see him on a football field again, but at the very least, hopefully we see him healthy and thriving in life long after his recovery from this. That's that, you know, that's my best wishes for him. Speaking of best wishes, I, I really have, a, a question for you about why Georgia for you at former USC quarterback JT Daniels? You know, I thought that was really interesting,
1: too, because I, I mean, I assume he was expecting he was going to have to sit out this season at Georgia anyway, because they're pretty well said it would have, you would figure with Jamie Newman at quarterback this year, but they've also got a lot of other talented young guys coming in. Uh, you got Carson Beck, added in this recruiting class and one of the most highly sought-after quarterbacks. And, you know, what, Zach, is it two years of eligibility JT Daniels would still have?
0: I think that's true, yeah. I, I think so. I think yeah. it's two. So,
1: I thought it was interesting. It, it's kind of a, you know, this is a a Southern California kid. You know, he's from Los Angeles, if I'm not mistaken. He played at modern day, I assume, where most USC Pipeline quarterbacks played. Um, and then, you know, for him to make the move all the way to, you know, Athens, Georgia is, is huge. I, you know, I would have, I get it from a, the standpoint of playing with all the talent he's going to have surrounding him on the Bulldogs and the chance to really sit and get on the national stage over there. Um, but I don't know. It was very curious. I hadn't really paid that close attention to be honest with you to who his suitors were but I really didn't expect Georgia to end up being where he ended up it's kind of like the reverse Jacob Eason is what it kind of feels like in their careers uh and how this has ended up so now what did what did you think about Daniels heading to Georgia Uh,
0: you know honestly you talk about the talent he'll get to play with at Georgia. The thing about that, though, is you also mentioned the talent at quarterback that he'll be, you know, competing against at Georgia, and it's really no different than at USC in that regard. If you can't beat out a Keaton Slovis, are you going to beat out the talent that Kirby Smart and that staff are bringing in at quarterback? Like, how many how many excellent quarterbacks have? been recruited by Georgia and left to go play at other programs. You mentioned Eason, there's Jacob, you know, you have, uh, Justin Fields, you have Jacob Eason, you have, you know, these players who, you know, they have, a uh, they consistently have great quarterbacks. They have more quarterbacks than they know what to do with. And I kind of wonder what the end game is for Georgia in this regard. Like, Great for Daniels, I guess. I don't know if he's ever actually going to get on the field. Like you said, he's got you know he's got the redshirt season. They didn't bring in Jamie Newman for nothing, <laughs> um, or at least you'd imagine they didn't do it for that purpose. Uh, so, you know, what's the end game for Georgia and? you know it's kind of like we talked about recently with Oklahoma as well as you continue to bring in transfer quarterbacks and you have quarterbacks transferring out of the program what is it you know after a certain point what does it start saying to to high high star quarterback recruits that you're trying to land for your program you know it, is it come you know roll the dice um in it, 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 the game of crafts that is the quarterback room and see if you can make the squad and if not, you know, sorry you wasted a year or two of your eligibility? Is that really what this comes down to? Or, uh... So, you know, I think for Daniels, it's... He's rolling those dice. It's just as good a roll for him there as it is at USC. And... You know, he feels like there's going to be more uncertainty after Newman than there really is for the next year, you know, couple of years with the Trojans. So, well, I think it's
1: probably fair to question at this point Kirby Smart's ability to um, develop quarterbacks because one of the big criticisms with Jake Fromm was that it didn't feel like he ever got any better from where he was as a true freshman. So He kind of burst on the scene as a true freshman, taken over from the injured Eason leading Georgia to a victory in South Bend over Notre Dame. They ride him all year. They make they win the SEC. They make the playoff. You know, the expectation is he continues to take that next step. And eventually as a junior, you expect him to be one of the best quarterbacks in the country. And he just he was the same guy. Yeah. as A freshman, a sophomore, and a junior. And, you know, there's definite criticism to be had of Kirby Smart with how that was handled. And he jumped to the pros after just three years, and he was what a fifth round draft pick at that. So, you know, in the two best, arguably the two most talented quarterbacks Kirby's had, both transferred. When you look at Eason and then you look at Justin Fields, obviously. So, I you know I, I believe if I've got the eligibility um, right with Daniels, I'm guessing he's probably going to be on target to graduate maybe after a year at Georgia. So. You know, he'd still definitely have options there if he's not feeling like he's progressing in the quarterback room in Athens. Potentially he could transfer as a graduate after that and move on to a more advantageous situation. So, you know, I feel like there was probably better fits for Daniels than Georgia at this point in time of what they have at quarterback. Uh, But, you know, I don't want to begrudge a kid for going where he wants to go. Uh, play college football at maybe could have again been more of an academic deal for him they might have had the, a program that he was really interested in studying and he wasn't super worried about it because I think it's also fair to wonder you know JT Daniels one of the most highly recruited quarterbacks in the last decade I mean he was the the heir apparent he was going to be the guy who brought USC back to national prominence that's all you heard in the recruiting cycles when he got there and, you know, he wasn't terrible as a true freshman starter, but he certainly didn't set the world on fire either. He didn't have a Trevor Lawrence-like impact. Um, he didn't play uh, like a Johnny Manziel playing as a red shirt freshman in College Station all those years ago at this point. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see if he's ever able to really figure out the vast potential that he has.
0: Yeah, and I, I, I'm i glad that you brought up Georgia and Jake Fromm's development, and, you know, how these quarterbacks like Eason and Fields needed to leave Athens to really have a chance at thriving. Obviously, Fields has, you know, done much better at that than Eason ultimately did at Washington, but, you know, had a serviceable season in, you know, at his home state school. And, uh... You know the way I look at Fromm's development at Georgia is a lot like the guy that Eason replaced at Washington, which was Jake Browning. You know he lit up the world and took them to the uh, the college football playoff. His I don't what I don't think it was his freshman year. I think it was his sophomore year. But he you know he won several. Pack 12 titles, and, but, you know, it, it felt like his stats just steadily tapered off. He would, you know, after that college football playoff run, he was supposed to be a Heisman threat that next year, and poof, you know, it's like the clock struck midnight, and the carriage turned back into a pumpkin right around his ass, so you know we could, I it there's a very real risk at the we're seeing the exact same thing happen with Georgia quarterbacks in that regard in which case you know you almost have to wonder are quarterbacks succeeding in spite of what they're doing to quarterbacks in Athens rather than because of it um So, you know, if Newman does have success, is it just that first year not having the full book on what he does with that offense? Is it the same thing with quarterbacks along the line? And, you know, if it works, it works. And, you know, a college football coach's job is to save his ass no matter what and keep it working. And both. You know, with the churn that's happened at quarterback there, it's nothing like a churn at Oklahoma where you can point at several Heisman trophies and say, we're doing it right. These guys are obviously productive. Is that really happening at Georgia, especially since so much of the churn is with guys going out and it feels like, you know, some cover your ass moves with these transfers coming in?
1: Yeah, uh, definitely a surprise. Um, You know, best of luck to to Daniels. Hopefully he'll figure it out and be happy wherever uh, he ends up throughout his football career. Um, he's He's definitely got a lot of talent. We've seen it. We've seen the flashes. I mean, he had several throws. I remember as a freshman at USC where you're like, goodness, this guy's going to be that dude at some point. And, you know, it doesn't always materialize like that, because a lot of being a quarterback isn't just having the arm talent, isn't always just being accurate. It's a lot It's mental. A lot of it's mental and being able to process what you're seeing on the field. Some guys figure that out, and some guys just don't.
0: And, you know, it's funny. Some guys figure it out in college, and then some guys, you know don't really look like they have it figured out but still are that prototype enough for the NFL that they're the dude that goes in the draft is the flyer anyway so football in general is just a weird weird all-around system in terms of how talent is evaluated how we judge players careers you know you would think for a sport where you know, these people are ostensibly going pro in something other than sports at some time in their life, as the NCAA likes to so poignantly say. You know, we you think we'd be measuring success in terms of, are they getting their damn degrees? How often do we talk about players' actual degrees? How often do we know what these players are studying? You'll get the occasional profile on a specific player, but you know, it's not something that you're is mentioned in every article about them, for instance. So, I agree. Well, before we go to break, I'd be remiss not to mention um, a coach who I'm sure is near and dear to your heart, John. Uh, Pat Dye, former Auburn head coach, passed away on Monday at age 80. Uh, June 1st he was in hospice care there in Auburn Alabama Uh, you know uh, he had been hospitalized in Atlanta back on May 21st with kid uh, kidney related issues again not a doctor I don't know specifically what was going on I even if I had his chart I couldn't read it for my life probably so let's not go too deep into that but Interestingly, he also tested positive for COVID-19, uh, when they did the precautionary test at the hospital, but he was asymptomatic and, you know, um, whether that was a contributing factor or not has never been said. You know, the kidney related issues were obviously the, the problem for him when he passed away in hospice care on Monday, but, you know, college football loses another, you know, uh, sort of standard bearer head coach, one of those really iconic head coaches. I mean, they've been calling it Pat Dye Field at Jordan-Hare Stadium since 2005, so obviously his legacy means something. Um, you know, what? being in Alabama, John, I'm just curious, do you have any sense of how people are, you know, relating to this, you know, this week is. Uh, you know, remembrances of diet are going around and whatnot. Yeah,
1: he's just one of those guys that's a was a titan of the industry, really. One of those, when you, you know, in your formative years of learning about college football, he's one of the guys you hear about that had a ton of success. And I think one of his biggest successes was his impact on the Iron Bowl uh, in, in modern days. His push to get the Iron Bowl out of Birmingham because Auburn fans for a long time were unhappy that the Iron Bowl was played in Birmingham every year because every year it felt like that was an Alabama home game because there was more, you know, Birmingham's only an hour away from Alabama's campus. The majority of the state's always been Alabama fans as opposed to Auburn, so a neutral site was never going to be neutral. So Dye pushed and pushed, and finally in 1989, he got his wish. The first Iron Bowl was played on campus at Auburn, and, you know, the rest is history. Now we've gotten all these weird voodoo stories from um, from the Plains because of that. So, But he also made the Iron Bowl competitive again. When he first got there, he took over the Auburn job in, uh, in 1981, and they were in the midst of just an unbelievable era of dominance for Alabama. Alabama, coming into that season, had already won the Iron Bowl eight consecutive years Bear Bryant's Alabama teams in the '70s had dominated the decade in the Southeastern Conference and the nation at large, and just won back-to-back national titles in '78 and '79. And you know, they lose the first game in, in 1981 to Alabama, so it's nine in a row. But after that, they win six of the next eleven. They made he made the Iron Bowl competitive again. He beat Bear Bryant in his final Iron Bowl. Um, you know, he recruited Bo Jackson to Auburn, who won a Heisman Trophy. So I mean he's he's definitely one of the legends of the of the conference and of the coaching profession. It's sad to to see him uh, to see him go, um, even at 80 years old. That still feels too young in my mind. So um, even being an Alabama fan my whole life, it was hard not to have a lot of respect for Pat Dye because he always came off as such a genuine person. Uh, when you would hear him speak and, and everything, and he always seemed to have a good relationship. I, I think it was Gene Stallings who came out um, and, and released a statement today and said that him and Pat Dye obviously coached against one another uh, for several years at rival school and they never had one crossword among them. And that's something that I don't think we get a lot of nowadays um, in the profession because it's so cutthroat as it is now. Uh, but guys like that, you know, that's an era that we'll never get back, and I think it's it's I think it's nice that we can sit back and appreciate uh, what he was able to do and for how long.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's one of those coaches. He had 19 years as a head coach between you know his six seasons at East Carolina, where he led them out of the Southern Conference when we saw the breakup of one A 1A and one Double A and, you know, led them into life as a 1A independent, took them to the Independence Bowl back in 1978 as an independent, um, you know, won 48 games in East Carolina in six seasons, 48-18-1. and one. So you knew the guy could coach his ass off um, well before he got to a big-time job, uh, you know, before I fell in love with Wyoming football, he had one season in Laramie where he went six and five at a time when BYU was dominating the league and there was really, you know, getting to above 500 was a ridiculously good fortune year for for the Cowboys. And, you know, he parlays the, those gigs into the Auburn job and you know, he has four SEC championships. He wins 99 games with the Tigers. He, you know, goes to nine consecutive bowl games, you know, as you mentioned. Leads them out of sort of this this holding pattern that they had been in and really allowed them to reassert their position in a state that had long been dominated Crimson Tide. So... Um, you know, it, it, as you well know, rivalries are at their best when both sides are relevant. Uh the stakes get higher. You know, everything just every hit, every you know point means that much more in those situations. And I think you're absolutely right when you said that that Dai is the one that had a real outsized role in restoring relevance to this rivalry in a way that hadn't necessarily existed before and um you know just can't be undone since well on that note let's take a quick break everybody and when we come back we're going to be talking a bit more about life and the world in general so stay tuned Welcome back after the break, everybody, to the Saturday Blitz podcast. We just went over some good old general college football news in our opening segment. Uh, Now we're going to be shifting to some, you know, some more general news around the country. Um, George Floyd's recent death in Minneapolis um, while in police custody... Um, at the hands of the Minneapolis Police Department was all captured on video and it sparked this recent round of protests ar- across the country um, you know which have predominantly been nonviolent. we've seen escalations um, you know both on the part of the, the police on the hands of select agitators that have been in the crowd as well um, you know of unidentifiable persuasion necessarily. I think, you know, we have a lot of conjecture about they're this party or that party or this group is what's really causing the biggest damage. And a lot of that is all conjecture. What we know is the overwhelming, you know, response has been peaceful, has been nonviolent. We've seen even in those instances of, of nonviolence and, and peaceful protests, um, police backlash against that as well. So, you know, we've seen a lot of, it's a powder keg situation. Um, I'm not here to persuade your politics necessarily. We talk college football Um, I could certainly talk to you about that all day, and I would love to do so, but that's not the platform we necessarily have here. But we need to acknowledge just the ground, you know, the ground facts here. This is what happened. George Floyd is dead. People are understandably outraged about this, as the latest in a long series of police brutality, especially against black people in this country... I was writing reports about this when I was in high school back in the 90s with people like Johnny Gamage, Amadou Diallo, guys like this. Um, And the names continue on and on and on. And George Floyd is the latest. And people are upset. We've heard P.J. Fleck come out at Minnesota speaking out about this. Um, Just Devastated. You know, he's encouraged his players to do so as well. Uh, The Big Ten commissioner, Kevin Warren, has set up an anti-racism coalition in response to this and is encouraging, you know, everybody, um, you know, to voluntarily come forward in this effort. Um, We've heard Tom Allen at Indiana come out about this. Tom Arth at Akron. Tom Herman at Texas. Um, other coaches, not named Tom, even have been coming out. <laughs> um, you know, either t- either publicly through through venues like Twitter or just privately to their whole teams about these issues and arguing for change. But this really begs the question: is is what is the obligation of these coaches? What is the responsibility of football coaches? of, of Conference commissioners like Kevin Warren of athletic directors at these schools, university presidents even. What is their obligation? What is their responsibility in terms of speaking up and speaking out as it pertains to these instances of police brutality? You know, the deaths of individuals like George Floyd and the cumulative deaths of... All of the George Floyd's added up, you know, what is their obligation to speak to the unrest that leads people to protest, even in the midst of a pandemic to risk their lives on multiple fronts, whether it's, you know, to in, inhaling tear gas um through masks that are designed to keep them from blowing a virus out to the public that they may or may not have, but certainly doesn't prevent all that, that tear gas from coming in. You know, what is their obligation to speak out about all these things? I think, you know,
1: I think they definitely have an obligation. Um, Mainly just when you look at it, most of these guys are the highest paid public employees in their states. And they have a platform that a lot of people don't have, you know, and simply releasing a statement to me isn't good enough anymore um, because this stuff just keeps happening and happening. Sure, it's nice to see guys like Nick Saban, see guys like Davo Sweeney come out in support of the protesters to do to deride police brutality and all that. But, you know, at a certain point, that's just not enough. That, to me, starts to feel disingenuous when that's all you're doing is releasing a statement through your respective PR department. And a lot of it feels like saving face. It feels like they're doing that because their teams would be disappointed. I read a story earlier today. uh, Every single NBA franchise except the New York Knicks have released a, a statement Um, in support of the protests and against the police, the systemic police um, brutality and all that that's going on and a lot of the Knicks players understandably are really upset with their ownership group and all that for not coming out and saying anything. So I think you have a lot of people who will come out just to release something, just to relieve the pressure they're feeling internally from their respective teams, uh, their players, their communities but I think a lot of them Zach, I think a lot of them stop short of doing what needs to be done because they don't want to alienate portions of their fan base, particularly when you look at conservative states like Alabama, like South Carolina, uh, just for those two as examples, because the majority of the fans of both of those teams are conservatives. And not to get too political with it, but those are the groups that tend to side more with The police on these instances, they tend to give police more free reign than other people do. Um, And regardless of what your politics are, you watch that video and there's no distorting the fact that George Floyd was murdered by that police officer. And that police officer and the three or four others who were standing there and let it happen deserve to be held accountable for that. And it's not just this one incident. This one incident in and of itself is a big deal. But it's just another in a long line of continued um, situations where the police have used excessive force, where they have particularly targeted minority groups and unfortunately killed plenty of people of color because, you know, because they're on higher alert because of the color of that person's skin. And... You know, I'd like to see these football coaches, these administrators, I would like to see more action, I guess. I would like to see more, you know, more from them than a a statement released through the university's public relations department. I'd like to see them maybe going out with their players and protesting, you know. They don't have to go out and, and riot and loot and stuff like that, but they can go out and peacefully protest. You know, how impactful would it be to see nick saban to see Dabo sweeney one of those guys leading a protest in their respective cities in tuscaloosa or in clemson um against this kind of thing you know and that's that's more what i want to see and I, I forget who you said it was who set up the the anti-racism fund
0: uh, it, it, it's Big Ten Commissioner Kevin Moore and it's a it's an anti racism coalition. I you See, know, I I have no specifics about what actually is going to be done by this coalition.
1: But that's something, you know, that's yeah. tangible, that's something you can hang on to. Yeah. That's more the kind of thing that I'm ready to start seeing because, you know, obviously we talk about football on this podcast. You and I both love college football. It's one of our favorite things on this planet. But at the end of the day, it doesn't mean shit, you know? Like, at the end of the day, football is pointless when it comes to the grand scheme of things because our lives as human beings, that's what really matters. And too often, we've turned a blind eye as a country as, you know, people like George Floyd have repeatedly, over and over and over again, been targeted and been murdered right in front of our faces. And I think it's time we as a country stood up to the systemic racism that's allowed for this to happen for so many years. You know, you look back at 1960s during the the peak of the Civil Rights Movement, and it's incredible how much things are the same. You know, when you look at it still 50-plus years later, you know, things are different, sure, but a lot of things are just the exact same. And it's a shame. So, you know, I, I appreciate that these coaches aren't afraid to speak out. I think that's a move in the right direction because you would not have seen that 20 years ago. These coaches would have shut up and stuck to football as it was and would not try to be any kind of controversial as it comes to that. So I know we're moving in the right direction from that standpoint. But I'd like to see more concrete evidence that these coaches and these administrators are doing what they can to, to fight
0: for social justice. Definitely. And honestly, it, it kind of brings to mind something I'm reading right now. Uh, it's Derek White's book, uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Jake Gaither, Florida A&M, and the History of Black College Football. And they talk about Gaither as the head coach, or White talks about Gaither as the head coach of Florida A&M during the civil rights movement and as for instance the tallahassee bus boycotts are going on in the wake of the montgomery bus boycotts and you know along with all of these different nonviolent direct actions across the country and um and you know gator actively discouraged his players from participating in those and yet you know, I, I think oftentimes we see coaches recognize they're doing a calculus about their own jobs. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, in Gaither's case, it comes down to if Florida a and you know, if desegregation happens, if racial integration happens at primarily white institutions across the country, especially across the South his program basically becomes irrelevant for eternity, And as a proud man who was winning, you know, one black national championship after another, it, that's something, you know, if you're active. If you're protesting for desegregation, if you're actively engaging in these boycotts, you're actively engaging for your own obsolescence. And that's a shame. I mean, Um, And I think that's something that doesn't necessarily get addressed enough. And I think that's why these coaches make these these calculations. But you're absolutely right. If somebody like Nick Saban rolled up with 130 of his players in Tuscaloosa or in Birmingham, for instance, just to make it even bigger, um, that has an impact. That has a huge impact. You know, that makes it bigger than... Politics, Because you go into a locker room and, and those guys don't all have, you know, you're, you don't have 130 people in political lockstep in, you know, it, a football team is not a bunch of stepford wives. It, it, it just comes down to that, that you have, um you know, a, a diversity of opinion. But if they all unite together for that purpose, that's when it becomes bigger. And I think the the other thing I really want to make sure that we don't step over is, you know, college football is primarily staffed by white head coaches. You know, obviously the record is better at, at the FBS level than it is, for instance, at the NFL. At the same time, it could be much better. You know, you think about it. And then you think about the players themselves, these rosters, and in relation to the student body, they're very disproportionately staffed by black players. You know, 46% of Power 5 rosters are comprised of black players. And on average, only 5% of the student body at those schools is black. You know, it's a nine times you know difference there um, the gap is a bit smaller at group of five schools where the student body is on average 11% black but 52% of those the players on those football programs are black so you know you have primarily white coaches coaching disproportionately black teams and you know not speaking out i think not in action on their part is tantamount to not upholding you know all the florid talk that they give about molding these players and being there and concerned and making sure that they they develop into well-rounded young men and that they're going to be safe when they leave home and their parents entrust them in their care and yada 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 and if you're not speaking up to re- you know, and, and taking steps from your position of power, like you said, these are, are, you know, these are the most well-paid public figures in their state. By and large, you, you point your finger at any state in the country, and that's true, whether it's a football player or a basketball or a football coach or a basketball coach. It's going to be one or the other in, I think, 43 out of the 50 states, They have an outsized influence, and if you're not using that outsized influence, you're complicit in the structures remaining in place, and those structures disproportionately target your players. So I think in a way, you do have that obligation, you know, if you're going to uphold your word that you give on every recruiting trip that you make. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I,
1: I like that you brought up the, the makeups of the rosters and all that, too, because, you know, and, and I, there's been a, a point that's been raised through all this. Uh, a friend of mine who's black had said, you know, I wish people would love us off the field as much as they love us on the field, right? Because when you look at uh, athletics and all that, they are disproportionately – black when you look at basketball and football especially and you know we cheer on these people every every single week playing sports and then off the field we you know turn our backs on them and and some of us even encourage the the police to to use excessive force when it comes to that because of whatever convictions they have inside of themselves so you know i i agree uh with what you said with, in terms of the responsibility of the coaches. And I, I really would like to see, you know, more of that. I would love to see, like you, like I said earlier, Nick Saban leading a protest, Davos Sweeney leading a protest, something like that. And maybe, you know, maybe now isn't the time for that, but maybe it's time during the season. You know, everyone derided Colin Kaepernick several years ago for peacefully protesting by taking a knee during the National Anthem. Maybe, you know, these college football coaches have their entire teams do that uh, before games this season uh, as a collective unit. And that's, you know, their way of doing that, you know, because whatever the the problem is, is whatever or however people choose to protest, there's going to be a section of people who disagree with it. You know, the protests right now are being, you know, dismissed and people are angry because they're not peaceful all the way around. I think the majority of them have been, like you mentioned, but there have been riots, there have been looting and stuff like that. But at the same time, several years ago, Colin Kaepernick did one thing, he took a knee on the sideline and people wanted to just kick him out of the league and throw him in prison is how pissed off he made people. He was being widely booed every Sunday by every NFL fan base and God knows all the comments on social media that came about on. But this is the thing that Colin Kaepernick was protesting about back in, I think it was 2015, 2015, I think, at this point. Um, this is what he was doing back then. It might have been later than that. I don't know for sure. Everything's kind of running together at this point in time. But this is what he was protesting back then, right? This is what he was protesting back then. And he did it as peacefully as you could possibly do it, and people still had a problem with it. So eventually enough is enough and, and more has to be done. So I just wanted to I just wanted to mention that about Kaepernick because, you know, I, I feel like he's been blackballed from the league, obviously, for the last several years. And it's just really disappointing um, that people didn't pay more attention to what he was protesting and really just decided to pick apart
0: how he chose to do it. One, well, that's the thing, is there's always going to be a subset that just actively hates whatever you're protesting. There's going to be that group that, you know, I'll come right out and say it. My mama didn't teach me to just hand out respect blindly. Not for, you know, the uniform that you're wearing, not for the title that you hold, not for the degrees that you've earned, whatever. You know, you earn respect. You earn respect on an individual level. Um, But there's a certain subset of people who blindly hand respect to the police and give them the benefit of the doubt in every single occasion. There's always going to be that subset. It's not a large subset, but it's a vocal subset. You're always going to have that group. But you're always going to have a far larger group that, you know, says, I agree with you know, what you're protesting, but I don't like the way you're doing it. There's going to be tone policing. There's always going to be, Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote about this in his letter from a Birmingham jail back in, I want to say 63, I think it was. But, you know, he talked about the white moderate and, you know, basically in this exact same situation where, they talk about being an ally, but nothing is ever going to please them in terms of the optics and the way things are done to hell with them. If, you know, if you're going to take a stand and you're going to be principled and you're going to stand for the lives of your players, their families, everybody else, um, in their, in, in their communities, you know, that 5%, you know, the one out of every 20 people on your campus, and think about that, how low that number is as it is, or, you know, group of five schools are quite, you know, proportionally twice as black as power five campuses. So these flagship institutions are disproportionately white as it is. If your primary representatives, however, are going to be more diverse in terms of of their representation, you need to damn well stand up for those most visible players on your university. You know, you're not paying them. They're they're offering some awesome PR for you game after game. Stand the hell up for them and don't do it in a wishy-washy way. That's designed to protect your job and save your fan base because history will look back at you just look at, you know, just like Gaither is problematized. Incredible head coach, you know, did so much for the black community in Tallahassee and throughout, you know, HBCU college football. But at the same time, he's remembered as an Uncle Tom in some sort of ways. And, you know, that's by the community that was there. The black community in the place at the time. I'm not a white guy accusing him of that. That's what's written in the texts from that period. So, you know, you're not going to please everybody. And whatever stance you take, history will remember it especially for these powerful head coaches because the lens is always on them. Well, you know, I, I think we've picked that apart enough. I think we're both in agreement that there is an obligation there. You know, there's an ethical obligation to be in that that position of power and do something about it and do something more than pay lip service to to the issue I think is really what we've gotten at here before we step away John any final words you want to throw out to the listeners out there before we sign off for another week really I just I want you know I hope everyone
1: stays safe with everything you know everyone's out protesting right now I don't want everybody to lose sight of the fact that the coronavirus is still very much alive and well So if you're going to go out and protest, try your best to social distance still, wear a mask, do all that to try to stay healthy because, you know, obviously the protests matter and are worth it, but also you want to make sure you don't end up catching a deadly disease uh, while you're out there doing that. And then I just encourage everybody to listen. Listen to the people who are angry. Listen to the people who are protesting. Listen to what they have to say. Because they're angry for a reason. They've been going through this for generations. And it's time for all of us who, you know, have the benefit of privilege to, to do something about it. To do what we can to help those that have been oppressed for such a long period of time. So I just would encourage everyone to open their ears, open their hearts, and maybe shut their mouths for a little bit and just sit back and listen to what people are saying right now.
0: Yeah, I I think that's a great, great place to end it at. Ultimately, what it comes down to is, you know, don't don't critique what's happening right now. Really come at it from a place, place of empathy and ask, why is this happening right now? Because as soon as you get to the why of it, you know, this isn't a political thing. This goes, this is, well, it is a political thing, but it's not a partisan thing. It goes far beyond, you know, people's horse race, you know. it It goes far beyond this red-blue dichotomy, this false dichotomy that we look at in terms of, you know, what side are you on? what side are you on is for college football everybody let's keep it to that you know like rivalries are awesome in college football because at the end of the day you can you can go home or you can leave the stadium and stop at a tailgate on the way away and whatever colors you're wearing if you're not a jackass you're in a you know you're in a community for life And you're in a community whether or not you're supporting the team that somebody likes or not. Um, And just like that, we're all in a community together. So listen to the people that need you the most. um, And don't, don't dictate to them the way something needs to be done. Ask them what you can do to help them get what they need the right way. On that note, John, thank you so much. It's great to get to talk to you again this week. I, uh, you know, just as we hope all our listeners out there stay safe, I hope you do as well. I look forward to talking to you again soon. We'll be back with you all next Wednesday. But until then, from the Saturday Blitz podcast, I'm Zach Bogolke. Thanks so much for listening.